This is The Guardian. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Why has British comedy got a problem with race? Because of that show in particular, it, it gave a okay for people to feel that they could continue the bullying. Little Britain, starring David Williams and Matt Lucas, has been removed from all streaming platforms. You're listening to Pop Culture with me, Shantae Joseph, for The Guardian. Guys, think back to the music of the early 2000s. Do you remember Craig David? Tracks like Seven Days. Fill me in. He was huge. And then Bo Selector happened. Had a bit of an accident last night. Piss bed again. The creator Keith Lemon would wear big caricature masks of black British celebrities like Craig David, Mel B and Trisha Goddard. They'd have huge lips and overly exaggerated noses. It was basically modern day blackface. After a while, those celebs vanished from our screens. And now we know they felt hounded out of the limelight. In 2020, creator Keith Lemon found his conscience. Well, um... I've been talking to some people and I didn't realise how offensive it was back then. And I just want to apologise. This was the same year that George Floyd was murdered and there was an outpouring of white guilt. And of course, that did not last long because last week, Keith Lemon seemingly decided that Craig David should just get over it. He told The Sun, if he feels people are going on about it, stop talking about it. Can I say I'm surprised? Not really. Today, I want to talk about British comedy. Why has it got a problem with race? When I think back to the 2000s, I remember watching Bo Selector on TV with my dad, Trevor. Hey, Dad! You're seeing me at work in my element. I love I this. Know. You, Let me get in your head. <laughs> I know. So I thought it was only right that I got him on the podcast to talk to me about it. Personally, I thought Bo Selector was rubbish. Like, <laughs> but I could see why 
people found it funny and how it got popular. Because it was kind of during that whole garage phase in it where, like, yeah, Craig David was, like, the number one thing. But then I kind of thought to myself, you know what, like, I think I would be quite offended. Like, yeah. he just built his whole career off that one... Craig David thing. <laughs> if that was me, like, if someone was continuously using me as a joke, like, I bet you every time someone saw him, saw Craig David, they would just say that to him, innit? He was proper upset about it as well. And he, I think it was on Elizabeth Day's podcast, he kind of spoke about, you know, it really upset me. It really affected me. Like, not only was it a little bit racist, but it was like bullying. I think, because when it came out in the early 2000s, I was quite young. I was maybe in like primary school at the time. And I just remember the kind of like big heads and the funny costumes and like, as a child, you see these like exaggerated like features and yeah. you think it's really funny, but it's like, as an adult looking at those shows, I was like, wow, like that was not funny at all. And it's like, it's even like really uncomfortable. Most comedy back then, like I think com comics got away with a lot more uh, because there was no like platform for consequence like there was no like there's no mm. twitter or or social media where people can go no i'm sorry but that's wrong like there was none of that so people could mm. say and do whatever they like and just walk off stage and get away with it but now you know you can't do that because the internet will bite you back now that we have these platforms craig david or anyone who's been victimized for, for comic for, for comedic value should say exactly how they feel and, sh and should be able to say it for as long as they like. Comics now need to just be smarter with their comedy. So I think like comics got to raise, raise their game. Do you remember watching comedy as a, as a kid or like kind of in the 80s? Were, what was it like then? Was it a lot of like racist comedy that you saw? Oh, mate, it, it was bad. You know what? None of those comics could, could survive in today's, today's world. There was uh, Jim Davison. He was the worst. Benny Hill. He was sexist and racist. During those times, there was only like, what, four channels? And he was on prime time. You know, you talk about it with your friends and laugh. But deep down, you were like, nah, that's that's wrong. But you kind of didn't really have a place to, to say anything, you know? Yeah. Do you think that some of the comedy back then almost, like, legitimised racism? Like, do you think because people saw it on, like... BBC and Channel 4 and people were blatantly racist it kind of gave people the confidence to act like that in in real life I I think that it was a reflection of how people just saw life like it mm. was okay to say the n-word it was okay to call you know black people names or Sikh people names it was okay to say that stuff because there was no one saying it wasn't, you know, like, and there was no community saying, nah, you know, you, you need to stop that. Yeah. Well, Dad, thank you so much for chatting with me on the podcast. It's, so, it's oh, so cool to have you on here. I can't believe it. <laughs> I know. You need to come and see me more. This girl, she doesn't come over enough. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'll get you there on Sunday. All you daughters, you must go and see your dads. <laughs> Yeah. Don't turn up when you need money, right? I don't! <laughs> it's no surprise to me that there are problematic portrayals of Black people and just straight up blackface 
in sketch shows. Just look at the racism that we experience in this country. So of course, TV execs think it's fine to position Black people as the butt of the joke. But it's more than that, though. It's about visibility and access. Where are the Black and brown people when decisions are made about what is commissioned? And do they even feel comfortable speaking up? Dane Baptiste is a comedian and writer. He wrote Sunny D, which was the first Black sitcom commissioned by the BBC in 20 years. He started by telling me what it was like when he joined the comedy circuit in 2012. What I found, particularly amongst uh, my comedy contemporaries, is that Black British narratives or or narratives about experience were not really indulged because there was a difficulty for white peers and audiences to find a true commonality with it. If you did uh, speak in a very spirited fashion about your experiences with racism in the UK, it was something that uh, a lot of British people would deny we had here. Particularly the critical class within comedy would definitely try and reduce the black British experience. And I saw a lot of my peers would get Mm -hmm. reviewed by critics, would be like, they're trying to mimic Def Jam. If you were a black comic and you were likened to a... uh, Def Jam comedian. It's kind of a very subversive way of saying that your lowbrow is a comic or quite hack. Ricky Gervais in uh, Extras. Yeah. Uh, there's the scene where he's talking to, I think, it's Keith Chagwin. Black people aren't funny. Black people are funny, Keith. Name one black person that's funny. I can name you loads of black people that are funny. Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy. English. And they don't say anything, and then the camera pans across to a picture of Lenny Henry. Um, and the idea is that Lenny Henry's not funny, and by that, uh, that extension, black British comedians aren't funny. Lenny is an impressionist by nature initially. So his foray into stand-up comedy was something that he was probably encouraged to do. But his writers aren't black. Very clearly, is as someone who was realising their career and potential in the 70s, where, you know, black executives or developers or producers would have been a strong zero. It would have been, like, with a lot of uh, BBC alumni, a lot of Oxbridge people mm. that would have been overseeing this man's voice. For people who don't know, like, what is... Def Jam Comedy. Def Jam Comedy is a, uh, well, it's more of a comedy brand, which was uh, created by Russell Simmons as part of his Def Jam imprint. And the idea was that he, at the time, I guess this would have been towards the 70s or 80s, did not see a lot of uh, accurate representations of the black or the African-American experience within comedy. Mm. And so basically he wanted to create a platform to, or a springboard for a lot of uh, black comics to have a broader audience. Def Jam kind of existed in order for people to give an unapologetically black and uncensored, unfiltered experience of, of the black experience without having to either water down your uh, style of comedy to be appear more affable or palatable to white audiences. And then as a result of that, like, you know, most, if not all African-American comedians of note have done Def Jam comedy, as well as some of the more prolific British ones like Ginny Ashray. Basically, with Ginny Ashray, it kind of typifies British comedy in whole in that, like, this is a woman who is openly lesbian woman who has now has a syndicated sitcom on American TV that's in its third season. Wow. The first uh, British comic to appear on Deaf Comedy Jam. And yet in a time now where we're supposed to be discussing the fluidity of gender and sexuality and an acceptance of those who exist outside the majority or dominant voice, why are we not carrying this woman on our shoulders? Exactly. I want to go back, though, to... Your time on the comedy circuit, you kind of getting into comedy like in 2012. And this was the tail end of the Little Britain Bow Selector era where, you know, suddenly people realise, oh, actually, blackface isn't okay. His name is Reverend Jesse King. Hallelujah! (laughs) I is from the ghetto. (laughs) You is from the ghetto. We are shocked. 
and it kind of ended. There was never really any sort of like reflection or apology. It was kind of just over. But for a long time, that kind of dominated like the British comedy, like British sketch scene. Do you feel like a lot of white comedians took their ideas or their caricatures of black people, of Asian people from that show? And do you still feel like comedy had remnants of that show within it whilst you were kind of starting out on the scene? What would, that would have more happened more on a larger social level. I guess my comedy for going into comedy in earnest was like 2012, but I had doubled with the idea earlier than that, like maybe in 2006. And then 2008, I'd given comedy go, but I kind of fell back for a bit because I was like, yeah, I don't really like what I'm seeing here. I just got a real feel for how Britishness works. What we have in the UK is something called, I call placism, which is a combination of class and race. Using like things like Little Britain as an example, I remember the sketch where Vicky Pollard is in the playground. All right, Vicky, where have you been? No, but, yeah, but, no, but, yeah, but, no, because it's all thing happened, what I don't even know nothing about. So, like, shut up and don't go give me evil, because we got, like, my man Jermaine now, and we've just been, like, around the back of the water, so that's me making baby. She goes that we're going to go make a baby, you get me? There's definitely the subtext of the idea that someone who is in an interracial relationship or has a mixed-race child is someone who comes from an impoverished background mm. and is just a result of fetishization. The idea that a white and a black person fell in love and have a child was alien to them. Mm. But I'd seen it before in uh, Harry Enfield, you used to have a sketch strand about a family that would have been, I guess they would have been described as chavs. Kathy uh, Burke used to play Wayne Netter and Hen Harry Enfield playing Wayne. Got you a present, anyway. It became very problematic, this idea that having a mixed race child is a practice that only happens to the lower echelons of society. There's a deeper political yeah, there's message that you are not afraid and more, to And it's more like, like dismantling these ideas and wondering why we have them. So when I started saying, why did the police profile us? And then, try and, and then drawing mutualities between that and a white experience, some people understood. But the best part was that I could see the very subversive racists becoming very uncomfortable. Another subversive tactic that a lot of black comics would deal with is that white comics and uh, other members of the industry would act as if we weaponize our race to give us an advantage over our white counterparts in like lineups. Oh. So they're kind of like, oh, you can talk about being black and that's a thing. And so people pay more attention to you for that and blah, blah, blah. And, well, you could always talk about the black stuff, can't you? Or they would do the, uh, well, you didn't talk about race that much or... It was good, but why talk about race so much? And, you know, it's a way of, it's, it, you know, it's a way of saying, we don't want to hear about the black stuff or it's a way of saying, you're one of the good ones. Right. And so, again, I would take that and sometimes there would be different ways I'd play with it. So, for example, sometimes just to, just to flex, I could do like 20 minutes without referencing race once, mm. but, make, but I know my set is better than everybody else's. Yeah, it yeah. was definitely a reflection of society where I think, the best way I can always put it, I should be more concise, is that in America, American racism is like, oh, what? Black people? <laughs> Whereas British racism is, I'm sorry, what black people? <laughs> yeah, we basically, we don't exist. Yeah, we don't they exist. don't see race. What is it that allowed these shows to continue? Who sits in these TV executive rooms and says, yep, we're going to green light this year on year on year? It's a very, very good question. I've discovered a few things about my throughout my own career that I found crazy. So the first thing is I wrote a sitcom in like 2015, 2016 called Sunny D. Turns out that's the first black British sitcom with a black majority cast that had been on the BBC in 20 years. What that means is that for 20 years, no black person has been able to make anything on the BBC. Not only that, no one has been able to advise anything that pertains to black people on the BBC either. 
I had to learn very quickly that you have to be very assertive in holding on to your creative control, especially over something as precarious as depicting black British life, especially when it hadn't existed on TV. So far as what allows these things to go ahead without checks and balances, well, I, I uh, spoke to the producer of Little Britain on the podcast, Ashley Bleeker, and he had said that one black exec or co-exec of the BBC had raised concerns about some of the aesthetics on the show, and they were largely ignored because they were massively outnumbered. But I'd say definitely the comedy of like maybe the 70s and 80s, where racism and overt racism was massively normalised, uh, and comedians of that nature were celebrated, whether it's like your Jim Davidsons or your Roy Chubby Browns, Mike Reeds, Bernard Mannings, they were celebrated comedians. Uh, what I think, I guess, what happened along in the timeline is that the counterculture for that came around with like the alternative comedy scene with your uh, Ben Elton's and Joe Brands and uh, Lenny Henry's. And I guess what happened was that when that became dominant culture, that carried so much that you had a lot of middle class execs and employees at the BBC who laid the sole blame for racism at the feet of these working class white men who themselves received their cues from middle class owned media. Right. And what also happens since happen is that there is always a very unholy covenant made where a black executive or black person will be awarded a job in these places, but the, the exchange is that you don't acknowledge your blackness. So and it's, so in the same way that you see a Kemi Badenoch, mm. you can have a position, but you deny that racism exists here. Otherwise yeah. you can't work here. We kind of disappeared from screens. And that's the real issue is that even though London is maybe cosmopolitan and other metropolitan cities are, are multicultural, there are still large swathes of the UK where people seldom see black people outside of football and maybe music. Right. A lot of black comedians, a lot of black people in the comedy scene were able to get themselves there because they had to use music as a as a conduit, basically. Yeah. How come people are only really noticed when they are in the music industry as opposed to just for their natural talent to be funny? There's two reasons. I think the first reason is for a lot of younger people, and I think for 90s babies onwards, they were in that dark period where they grew up and when they were coming of age where they didn't see black comedy appearing in a pure form. And so, whereas music appeared to kind of be flourishing, I guess, because it was so absent, music was the only other form of expression they had. Yeah. So you would have had these black comedians that wanted to do comedy, but they had never seen it before. I think that white executives and in industry still see black creativity as a monolith. Because while things may have changed, Big Nasty, based on his metrics and his appeal, will have a comedy show. Now, there is no denying that he is not talented and, and focused, but he shouldn't really be the first choice for a comedy show. And that's evident by the fact that he has Mo to assist him in presenting duties. Mm-hmm. Now, I only say this because I know, however funny people say Adele is off stage, they're not giving her a comedy <laughs> show. They're not giving her a comedy show. They, 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 it wouldn't even be considered. <laughs> Professor Green is not going to be on Have I Got News For You. But in the UK, they think black people rapping, singing, it's all the same. So we're interchangeable. The problem then becomes is that even though we're now trying to make our foray into these spaces, because they see us as a monolith, I'm for a lot of people who aren't au fait with comedy, these execs will... I'm interchangeable with Lethal Bizzle or Lady Leisha or, you know, Jordan Stevens because to them, if they're black and they can make a little bit of a joke, then it's the same. Yeah, we're still dealing with the racist ideal that our creativity is somewhat of a weird, homogenous lump of yeah. rapping and singing and acting and being stupid and being children. <laughs> I see it a lot as well, like even across like TV, like shows that come out, certain presenters that they pick to do things, it's like, this is such a weird pairing of yeah. like the topic at hand and the person you've got hosting it. But you're right. There's this idea that like all all black people can fill any role because one of you represents the rest of you. Yeah. A lot of execs are risk averse and they're lazy. 
and they won't do and do the research to find the proverbial diamonds in the rough or find somebody with the potential. So what they probably do now for a lot of execs is they go, oh, we want to have some black guys in it. Who's hot? So they go online. Perfect example being like Chunks and Philly. An online following, great guys, very positive narrative, as is someone like KSI. And you could argue have decent comedic timing. But they're not comedians per se. But I could tell you for free, every one of these execs are trying to find a format for these guys not really understanding their voice. If you are in a black a position as a black commissioner, you're kind of there for decoration because what you're not going to be able to do is commission more than three black TV shows that are all diverse because as far as industry is concerned, how diverse are black people? Let's take a moment and we'll be back with more from Dane. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. In 2020, there was a huge reckoning across the world. You're watching video from Officer Thomas Lane's body camera as he approaches George Floyd while investigating a report of a counterfeit bill. Overnight, Minneapolis on fire. Protesters leaving an auto parts store in flames. On this Saturday night, the National Guard moves in to quell the chaos. Tens of thousands of people have joined anti-racism demonstrations across the UK. As a result, you kind of saw Netflix, BBC, Channel 4, all of these places remove loads of their like back catalogue of shows that were problematic in the past where there had been blackface and whatnot. But do you actually agree with that? Should those things stay up there as a reminder of who we were in the past or do we kind of erase them? Because in some ways I'm like, Actually, when they were getting rid of it, I was like, yeah, get rid of it. But then I was like, hold on a minute. In 10 years time, I want someone else to go on BBC, find that and grill that person. Yeah, it, it, it will show you the meritocratic nature of, of the industry. Because if these people truly believed in what they were making and believed in it being artistic and being timeless, instead of it just being a flippant, cheap joke to get a cheap laugh about a different group of people who are mm. historically marginalised, we'll find out, won't we? I don't think they should be removed. I think they are historic and they capture the time like art is supposed to do. I'm f- I'm fine with my work always being out there. I'm never I'm never worried about cancelling stuff. I never have to hide stuff because there's no there's no material where I make flippant remarks about dark skinned black women just to get a cheap laugh or talk about weaves in a way as if black women are the only women that wear weaves. I don't have that material. So I I created my work, my body of work, with the view that in five to ten years time that can be very analysed and looked at with new attitudes. If someone says, Dane, what you said ten years ago was dumb, I'm a comedian. I should be able to be like, yeah, it was dumb. So yeah. what? Let me learn what to say next. I agree with you in the sense that people should be creating, thinking about how this will age, what it will look like, because we can kind of say that now because we're actually starting to see the responsibility or the accountability that comes with creating something that is very like off. 
Last year, both Dawn French and Ricky Gervais talked about cancel culture and how comedy these days couldn't really be edgy because of haters. And I don't personally feel like cancel culture has ruined comedy. I think it's elevated it because now I'm like more invested in supporting and seeing comedians such as yourself who are socially aware, know how to make very smart jokes that are that make you think that are critical, but don't necessarily have to punch down or don't necessarily make me feel bad about myself. I'm of the kind of school of thought that cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, has made people up their game a bit. But do you think that this idea of cancel culture has affected or impacted comedy negatively? I don't think necessarily affected it uh, negatively. It's, it's. I mean, we, we give it the name cancel culture, but all it is is just that you just have a new landscape where people can vocalise their dissent. It's not really, if you get cancelled, it's not like you are you are physically disconnected from, it's not like microphones turn off when you're speaking to them. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's not like if you step into a comedy club like the, or a church, the holy water starts to boil and stuff. There's <laughs> not really have an effect on your life. Mm. And I believe that for a lot of comedians, they're just dealing with what I refer to as like the emperor's new clothes complex, mm. where they've never been told they're naked before. And I think for, especially for alumni like Ricky Gervais and Dawn French, they've probably never really had feedback about the stuff they've done from from particular groups that they've never had to indulge before. Right. I probably wouldn't have been as well learned about the transgender experience without comedy. So for me, the council thing is, no, I agree with you. I think yeah. it's, you, you just got to work harder now. Exactly. You got to be better now. And considering that, what do you think the future of British comedy is? Like, can you imagine this sort of weird Bo Selector, Little Britain-esque comedy ever coming back? Or have we firmly put that behind us and we're moving into a new elevated place? The prosperity of that style of comedy is basically, is based on the fact that its audiences um, wouldn't challenge those beliefs because they had no other frame of reference. And as far as they know, it's okay to do so. Now people can go straight to market and, a mar and it's much more market-led rather than an institution that determines what is palatable to British audiences. When I started doing comedy, I used to go to a local comedy club called Up the Creek in uh, South East London. And the uh, owner's daughter and her husband used to run an open mic night. And her endeavour was to try and show the comedy industry that there is a much more diverse face within comedy and with Britain as a whole. When she tried to shop me to other agents, they literally said to her, we have a black comedian, why do we need two? That's that was crazy. the consensus among black British about, about British agents about black comedians. And even if you were a black comic that was signed to a larger mainstream agent, you'd be shelved and your opportunities would be limited or you might be working in support of a larger white act. My idea instead of, I said to her, I don't care. Why don't you manage me? Because they don't understand my voice. I prefer someone who understands what I want to do and we'll go that way. So fast forward and I'm, I parted away so I'm with another agent, but they've now gone on then to sign. So Baba Tunde, he was just on I'm a Celebrity, Mo Amazing. Gilligan, Eddie Caddy. Tanya Moore. Wow. Uh, there's um, Michael Odewale. So that's now become a powerhouse for black British talent because the industry didn't care. It angers me that black and brown people are constantly the joke and are structurally denied opportunities to be the joke tellers. If Keith Lemon is comfortable enough to try and police Craig David's feelings about his portrayal on Bo Selector, then we should feel comfortable bringing up his antics so people never forget how shameful it really was.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, then please subscribe and leave me a review. This week's episode was produced by Hattie Moya, sound design by Mao Lasetto, original music by Axel Kakutie. The executive producer is Maz Ebtaj. Catch you next Thursday. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.